right, you can have a seat. Man, I love that song. I'm glad you're here tonight. I'm, uh, I'm always glad on a, <laughs> on a weekend, like a three-day weekend, you just never know if anyone's going to show up. And there's a lot of folks here, and, and that's it's great. And I appreciate it. And, and we're tonight going to be in the Gospel of Mark, and we're looking at the lectionary passage from Mark for this week. Um, but the purpose tonight is going to be kind of twofold. On, on the one hand, um, I do want to just kind of look at this passage and think about what Jesus teaches here, but we also want to use this as kind of a introduction to the next few weeks. Uh, so starting next week with the anniversary and then some of the following weeks, we're going to talk through some of our practices as a community, what we do and why we do it, right? And so um, tonight's talk, I think, really lends itself well to introducing those ideas. And so uh, we'll, we'll be doing both of those things. Uh, and, and tonight is one of those passages where Jesus uh, gets sideways with the religious authorities of the day, right? Uh, those who are kind of seen as the spiritual leaders, um, Jesus ends up in conflict with them uh, and ends up saying some not-so-nice things to them. And, uh, and before we get into that, there's something I feel like I always have to say before we read these passages in the Gospels. And there's a few of them where Jesus starts to butt heads with uh, what would be for him the Jewish leaders of the day. Um, and I always feel like I remind everyone before we get into this uh, that Jesus was Jewish. All right? So Jesus was a practicing Jew. And so the conflict that he has here, unfortunately, we, we've got a long history in Christianity where people have taken verses like this and they've used it to, uh, to really uh, create anti-Semitic messages and to talk about how, how Jesus and God is kind of anti-Jewish and, and, and to, instead of taking the larger lesson that all of us should be taking from it, they, they try to make this something that kind of dismisses this one singular group of people and their religious practice. And I want to remind us that that is not what is happening here. Jesus is fighting with, and in the English translations a lot of times we'll say, the Jews. And that's, that's, it's not really language, uh, the, the way we say that sounds a little weird coming off of our lips nowadays, right? But again, remember that this was his tribe, very literally. The people, in fact, the people that Jesus uh, really gets into the most conflict with are the ones he is closest to. Um, of all the different types of Jewish practice and all the different sects within Judaism, uh, the Pharisees, uh, who Jesus ends up having kind of the most, uh, where he butts the heads with the most, they are the closest to him. He, is, he, he has a life and a practice and a way of going about things and, and thinking about God that is honestly very, very close to them. This is an intramural fight, okay? And so I always feel like I've got to remind us of that because some of this language, when we read it in, from uh, today in the English translation, it can sound like something that's not intended. And uh, the good thing is, uh, that if we, uh, maybe not the good thing, that if we don't let it do that, what we can then do is hear that these words are directed towards us as much as they are any particular religious sect a couple thousand years ago, okay? So we want to stand in front of these words and not stand behind Jesus and be like, yeah, that's what he said to you, you know, which is kind of what we tend to do with the Bible. Anything that's, you know, negative that Jesus says, we're like behind him, like we're his cheering squad, like he's not talking to us. Um, it's a lot easier to read the Bible that way. It's just not a good way to read the Bible. So let's start. We're going to look at Mark 7, and it's verses 1 through 8, 14 and 15, 21, 23. The lectionary kind of grabs pieces so, it, so you don't have to read too much, and it gets the point across. And I want to kind of walk through this and stop, walk, and stop, walk, and stop, and, and, and talk about some things as we go through it. So here we are, Mark, Mark chapter 7, it says this. Now when the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him, 
they noticed that some of his disciples were eating with defiled hands, that is, without washing them. Now, I'm going to stop there for just a second. So the, the word in Greek there that's translated as defiled, what it means uh, more literally is common, with common hands. And so the thing to understand is what's, what's happening, it's not that these disciples were like, you know, slopping the pigs or digging in the mud or, or fishing and, and getting their hands particularly dirty and then didn't clean them up. Their hands were just normal. They just were what hands are on any given moment. They just haven't taken the kind of extraordinary steps to cleanse them, right? So there's nothing wrong with their hands per se. Their hands aren't dirty. They're just not clean enough. Like you have to kind of go above and beyond. And that's how the idea of defilement and impurity kind of works um, with, you know, when we read it, we tend to think about, ooh, they must be really filthy or really dirty. That's, that's not really what it was, right? Uh, even, uh, we, got, we got kids in the room. So uh, e- even if, uh, if parents had a date night, uh, they were supposed to uh, purify themselves before they participated in religious uh, uh, practice afterwards, right? Uh, so after, after date night, they're supposed to... Pur- now, it doesn't mean you shouldn't go on a date night. Uh, the Bible's not against date nights. But it does mean that, uh, you know, it's not saying that what's going on beforehand is bad, but you have to, or you're supposed to make these kind of extra steps to, because, you know, you're dealing with God, right? This is, you're eating the food that God gave us. You're worshiping God, so you should do something above and beyond. It's, it's why, you know, when I grew up in church, we were supposed to dress even nicer on Sunday mornings, and you're supposed to, you know, do these certain things, and they were kind of performative, but they were because it was for God. And so that's, that is what is happening here. Um, so it's not typically the way we think of when we think of unclean or, or defiled. Verse 3, and here's a kind of a parenthetical from the writer. For the Pharisees and all the Jew, Jews did not eat unless they thoroughly washed their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it. And there's also many other traditions that they observe. The washing of cups and pots and bronze kettles. Um, and so, you know, here's, here the author is kind of trying to inform those of us who may not know the practice of these folks. And it is important to note that this quote-unquote rule that they're getting bent out of shape about um, is not actually scriptural. It's not in the Torah. It's not part of the actual law. It's part of the tradition of the elders. It is kind of above and beyond what is normally kind of practiced and even uh, asked for within Scripture, right? And in fact, what the, you know, Mark, when he says that all the Jews do this, that's hyperbole um, because, in fact, no, not all the Jews would do this. This is, a, this is something that the really righteous and really kind of holy folks would uh, take what was a core principle and you keep on making rules around it. You just, they're just a little bit extra when it comes to religion, right? Like that, like that uh, you know, you, you go to that, that party for a three-year-old and it's just insane and out of this world and the parents have spent way too much time and energy and money on it and now they've set a new standard and you feel like you've got to have you know, Batman parachute into your backyard when it's your three-year-old's birthday party. That's kind of what they're doing. They're building on top of what is actually necessary or makes any sense and, and they're, they're drawing the lines farther out. Probably the first time that comparison's been made, but I think, I think it works. So um, verse five. So these and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. You abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. Um, this is a really rough thing for Jesus to say to them. 
Um, I know it sounds kind of, it doesn't sound like a, a big slam to us, but it, but it is. And, and it seems that Jesus and his disciples are minding their own business. Some of them are eating, uh, probably resting after what was, you know, has been hard work, or whatever. And then they get called out. And uh, Jesus could rightfully ask, uh, or any of them could rightfully ask, what is it to you how we're eating? Why do these folks feel like they have the right to come up and question what's going on to try and call them to the carpet on it, right? But these Pharisees feel obligated, maybe even excited, to keep everyone else's score, right? We all know those folks. And Jesus names the problem with these religious folks as not that they're practicing things, not that they're washing their hands, none of those things. What he names the problem as is hypocrisy. The problem that Jesus is, is, is facing down against here is hypocrisy. That their practice, uh, it's not that their practice is inherently wrong. It's not that hand washing is named as wrong or evil for some reason. Hypocrisy is. Their hearts are not where their hands are, right? They have abandoned what actually matters, the reason why you do the things you do, the real reason for it. They've abandoned that while holding on to the appearance of godliness, the insides are not matching the outsides. Verse 14, then he called the crowd again. So now he gathers a crowd after saying this to him and says, listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile. But the things that come out what defile. So he calls a whole crowd, and then he says what would have been a monumentally contradictory thing for religion as it was practiced then. He calls the crowd back together and says something so contrarian. Nothing outside of a person can come in and make them unacceptable, make them defiled. That violates all of the ways they understand religion to work. This is a huge part of their daily religious practice that Jesus is now calling into question. In fact, later on it'll say Jesus, it'll have an inner parenthetical saying, he's saying that all food is clean. No one actually believes that, Right? He says, what a person eats, what goes into the body, cannot make them unacceptable to God, though what comes out of a person clearly can. So he gathers the crowd to tell them that food, dirt, etc. does not make you unclean. This undercuts everyone's functional understanding of religion at the time. No one believed this. And then he says it in front of the crowd in response to their most religious members who just identified what was going into the disciples' mouths as defiled without any consideration for what was coming out of their mouths. This response is the kind of thing that we pass by quickly, but understand this is how Jesus builds a case to get killed later on. 17 through 23. When he left the crowd and entered the house, the disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, then do you also fail to understand? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile, since it enters, not the heart, but the stomach, and goes out in the sewer? There would be another shorthand way of saying what Jesus is saying, all that is, but I won't do it. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, it's what comes out of a person that defiles. For it is from within from the human heart that evil intentions come, fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, the Greek there says, or whatever. James, you got it right. <laughs> it's just wrong to get a word like that without knowing it's coming, I'm sorry. Uh, envy, slander, pride, folly. 
all of these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. All right, so there, there's a lot going on in these verses, and we could spend a good bit of time here. Uh, there's a lot going on in the scriptures. But I would like to take a quick kind of glance and just talk for a couple minutes and look at this claim that Jesus makes here. And I want to consider it in light of religious practice. Because it would be easy to look at this verse, and this is how I interpreted it for a long time, which really said more about me than it did about Jesus, but it would be easy to take a quick glance at this passage and claim that Jesus is against religion or religious practice. Right? There, there was a time when I definitely read it this way. My experience with organized church and religion helped me along the road to believing that religious practice was to more destructive than helpful, uh, usually didn't represent who people really were. Uh, I thought people were hypocrites that practiced it, and so I would announce great judgment upon all religious practice with much flurry, and I would quote scripture like this to prove how right I was. And here we have Jesus calling out the religious, living like a rebel, not following religion. Jesus was against religious practice, and so will I be. Amen. And like anything that's destructive, that's based on a kernel of truth. It's just not the whole story. And in the same way that I felt like I needed to remind you that Jesus was Jewish earlier, we should also note that he wasn't just Jewish, he was observant. He practiced Judaism. He practiced the Jewish religion. Certainly, Jesus violated many of the religious norms and traditions, as we see here, uh, that some of his contemporaries valued, and they couldn't understand why he didn't value. But he practiced Judaism. He was in the synagogues. He went to temple. He celebrated the holidays. He quoted and taught from the Torah, and on and on and on. He was squarely within the religious tradition, and he practiced it. Jesus was not anti-religious practice. He was considered a rabbi. It's probably why the Pharisees were so surprised that he wasn't doing what they felt like he should be doing. Jesus was not anti-religious practice, not anti-religion. Jesus was, however, anti-religious hypocrisy, and strongly so. Hypocrisy is that universal human propensity to present something externally that is not consistent with the truth of who we really are internally. It's a lack of integrity. In the Greek, the term is derived from theater. It's about how one wears a mask and pretends to be someone that they aren't really. And hypocrisy, if we're honest, is a fundamental part of our nature. We all pretend. Just today, I posted a super cute video of my kid because that's what, you know, that's what social media is for as far as I'm concerned now. I don't want to have any more political conversations on there. And it was when... Uh, it was, it was my son Chapman was standing outside of his sister's door and she had a friend over and they were playing inside and uh, he was not happy about the fact that they were playing with Adam and he was just standing there with it and he's learned the pooch lip the last week. I mean, that lip will come out like this far. Just. And so I, I turned on the camera because he was sad, like every good parent does. Because uh, you need to catch it on film, right? And, uh, and, I, and I was just asking him, are you okay? And, and Are you sad? And he was like, no. No, and he was just, he was like trying to act like it wasn't a big deal, but he was obviously bereft that they were having fun in there without him, and he even kicked the box that was on the floor next to him while saying he wasn't upset. It's, 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 it's born into us. One of the greatest gifts you can give yourself uh, is to get an office like I have. 
We've got an office on a road where there's a lot of foot traffic. And I have windows in my office, and those windows are very reflective, which means they operate as one-way mirrors. And I don't know what it is about the human mind that gets out of a car or walks by that looks and knows it's a window but treats it like a mirror. But it happens all day, every day, and it's amazing. I've seen some things no human being wants to see, but I get constant entertainment from that window. And one of the things that you see happen all the time is that people will be walking by, they'll be getting out of their car, they'll be doing whatever, and, they'll, and, and you, if you happen to look at the right moment, you'll, you'll get them as they catch that first glimpse of themselves, and they see themselves as they really are. Maybe they're disheveled, maybe they're slumping, maybe they're not looking the way they want to look, or their hair's not in the right place, or whatever the thing might be. And then you quickly see them stop and adjust and turn into the person they want to present themselves on and then move on. And it lasts about eight or nine steps before they forget how to maintain that posture and then it goes back to the way it was. It happens a lot with young boys, like because they always go to the family, there's a snow cone stand and a family dollar right next to us. And so they're always going back, getting candy and drinks and going by as the same group of kids from the same neighborhood. And the boys are constantly, they're all walking together and they're the goofiest little nine and ten-year-old boys you've ever seen. They're laughing and they're all gangly and all weird. You know, like just little kids' bodies moving, all this kind of stuff. And then they catch themselves in the mirror and inevitably they all just start going. And then just start walking like, like they own this place, like they're in some kind of street gang or something. Because they want to present themselves as something they are not. Right? Social media is a hypocrisy machine. We even literally get little dopamine hits when people say that they like the thing that we've put out that isn't really true about us. Because even when we're being real, we're not being real on Facebook, right? Because no one wants that. We already have real life. Give me something else. None of us want to really be ourselves. We all want to present ourselves as something we are not. That's just life. We have hypocrisy built into us. We pretend all the time and often it's more innocuous than other times. You may want to posture yourself as you're walking down the street after you catch a look at how untough you look. You may want to fix your hair. You may want to do whatever. That's fine. It's not that big a deal. But religious hypocrisy is something particularly destructive. And that's what Christ had no time for whatsoever. Because religious hypocrisy basically creates idols. It introduces something that is false into worship. And we've all seen it. We recognize it. We know what it is. I know a lot of your stories, and one of the stories that a lot of you have in common is that you grew up in churches or religious traditions that seem to be full of complete hypocrites. People who said one thing, claimed to believe one thing, claimed to be one thing, but didn't actually do it. They lived a different way. It wasn't who they really were. We all know people like that. Or we've been the people who have experienced that in church, and some of us have walked away from it, maybe even all together for a while because of it. We know about the hypocrites, because hypocrisy is not that hard to find in other people. It's just hard to locate it in ourselves. It's easy to see in other people, but we don't see it ourselves. It's so easy to see in other people, it's almost like you could walk up to a group of strangers eating a meal, minding their own business, and determine how godless they really were just by looking at their hands. Religious practice is not the problem. 
religious hypocrisy is. What Jesus rants against is not that the Pharisees wash their hands. It's that the Pharisees watch everyone else's hands. Wash your hands all you want. How much time are you watching other people's hands? Right? The, the fact that this group of religious leaders genuinely felt they had the authority and duty and knowledge to confront Jesus and the disciples and call them into question reveals what their religious practice was really all about. In fact, as a general rule, if the way you act out your religious beliefs, if your religious practice makes you more concerned with everyone else's purity than your own, then it's really not about God at all. And it never has been. And as Jesus says, it's hypocritical. It's about something else altogether. I believe that true Christian religious practice is important and beautiful and good. I wouldn't be here if I didn't think that. I think that good religious practice is the way we order our lives in order to be consistently reminded of who God is, what God is like, how God loves us, and how God has created us to live in this world. It's the practical ways in which we enact our religion in this world. It's intended to be the means by which we practice deeper wells of gratitude and humility and grace and love in a world that so often reminds us of everything but. But we should never stop looking at our own religious practice and asking if we too have missed the point. So washing their hands was not the problem, but if I'm going to make an effort to purify my own hands before a meal, what is the point? Why do I do that? I'm assuming I put that uh, discipline into place so that uh, this daily occurrence, this thing that I might otherwise do without thinking, becomes a moment that is sacred. Right? So that a meal that I might otherwise take for granted is a reminder that all things are a gift from the Creator. So that I'm made aware once again that God has given good gifts and God has sustained me from God's own hand. A reminder of grace to increase my sense of gratitude towards God and maybe compassion for those who don't get to wash their hands and eat in that moment. At what point in all of that is checking my neighbor's hands against mine any part of the equation? It's not. It is completely beside the point. When does my neighbor's performance ever become part of this? Right? Only when the practice is not really about who God is and who God has created me to be. Only when the practice is performative for each other, when it's acting, when it's hypocritical. At which point we've missed it altogether. <laughs> You'll not be surprised, given that I'm up here each week, that I believe in holding two things that maybe feel contrary at the same time. I believe that we should be unequivocally opposed to religious hypocrisy and remain absolutely committed to authentic religious practice. I don't think the baby needs to go out with that bathwater. I think we should give zero time and zero space to wrapping anything in faith that is really about something performative instead. And I think we should be absolutely committed to authentic religious practice. In fact, I don't think you will be who you want to be without it. I believe the answer to bad religion is not no religion, but good religion. 
I believe the answer to bad religion is a religion that doesn't go about trying to question anyone else's purity, but instead consistently turns the mirror on itself and asks itself, who am I? Who is God? Why am I doing the things I am doing? Why am I practicing my faith the way I am practicing my faith? Are our personal and communal practices increasing our sense of God's love, our own humility and desire to serve one another? Does our religious practice make us, make, make us more concerned with the condition of everyone else's hands or call us to the more difficult and profound work of attending to the condition of our own hearts? Because this is what Christ, what really kind of set Christ off here. Christ's whole point was who cares about your hands? Take a good, hard look at your heart because that's where the trouble starts. And that's what this is all about. Examine your heart. Why do we do the things we do? That's going to be the big question that we want to explore in the next few weeks. Why do we take the time to gather here each week and do this? Why do we serve together? in places like Hawkins Elementary School? Why do we do communion? Why do we baptize each other? Why do we dedicate kids in front of the group? What is the point? Why are we doing the things we're doing? And how can we make sure we're not missing what God really has for us in the midst of it? Because I think I want what you want. I want to participate in a transformative religious life without falling for any of the hypocritical religious acting. So that's what we're going to talk about the next few weeks. We're going to kind of turn the mirror on ourselves and talk a little bit about why we do what we do and how we can make sure that we too don't end up missing the point. Let's pray.